again, a big welcome to all of you, but particularly those that are new here today. As the kids make their way back, Pastor Matt will be uh, coming up to share a gospel message with us. Thanks. Well, it's a beautiful time to be together, and Christmas is um, a very special time. And we've been led so well in, in worship by some wonderful, gifted musicians and vocalists, and how wonderful those songs were and those items were. It's another Christmas that we come to. Christmas is a real reminder of the hope that we have uh, in the Lord Jesus. Each year for us in the Southern Hemisphere, at this time of year, the nights are long, the mornings are early, the sun is warm, and the water, whether pool or river or my personal favorite, the ocean, it certainly beckons. And so for us in the Hawke's Bay... It's a special time of year. The cherries are even out too. Trust you've been enjoying those. They're beautiful this time of year. And so we enjoy and bask in much of God's creation. We make the most of summer. We make the most of the warmth of the weather. It's a lovely season. Christmas is a really lovely season. It's a reminder, as I said, of the hope that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's, what's below the surface of that statement, the hope we have in Jesus? What, what's below the surface of Christmas being the time where we are reminded again of the hope we have? Well, I want us to go on a little journey this morning and consider more about what makes up that hope, what makes that hope so special. And I made mention that we enjoy the creation and we enjoy the sunshine and as we enjoy all the summer treats that God in His kindness offers us, I'm reminded of what things were like before the fall. And by the fall, I am referring to the sin of Adam. Before the fall, the creation was pristine. There was no death or decay. There were no weeds or thistles or prickles to pull out or to stand on. Just absolute perfection and paradise. Absolute perfection and paradise. And so a little journey this morning. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 31. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Very good. God saw all that he had made. 
and was very good. Genesis 2 speaks of God creating mankind, both male and female. Both the first male, the first female, Adam and Eve, lived in perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect fellowship with their creator, God. And so you had a clear creator and creature distinction. There's no blurring. Mankind functioned properly in the garden with God and with others. And also with creation, the earth itself. We then know, don't we, that something that was not very good happened. In fact, it was something very bad. What was it? The fall. Genesis chapter 3. This is where mankind violated that creator-creature distinction. And mankind set himself against God. By acting outside of God's will. That act of sin occurred when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And it was at that moment that something drastic occurred between mankind's relationship to God. Mankind's relationship to fellow man. And mankind's relationship to the earth itself. It was a threefold damage you could say. In regard to God, man was now in a spiritually dead state. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Dead to spiritual affairs. Unable to respond to divine stimuli. Spiritually dead. Mankind plummeted from spiritual life into spiritual death. Unable to bring himself back to the spiritual life that he once enjoyed. In regard to fellow mankind, there was now the introduction of disharmony and disunity and quarrel between fellow members of humanity. Didn't exist prior to the fall. Sickness and pain now in childbirth. In regard to the actual earth, the creation, instead of the earth working for man... The earth was now working against mankind because the earth itself is under the curse too and is broken and decaying. And so you can say as a result of sin, death and disunity and decay certainly entered into the world. And the penalty of that sinful rebellion against God is and was And still is death. Certain death. A death that manifests itself as spiritual death. As physical death. And then ultimately eternal death. Which means, which refers to the everlasting judgment and separation from God. So fair to say things altered in the garden. As a result of Adam's sinful act. What happened in the garden was the transmission of both Adam's sinful nature 
and Adam's guilt, his guilty standing, it was transmitted to the entirety of humanity without exception. Everyone is of Adam. There is one race. Multiple ethnicities, one race. We are all, regardless of our ethnicity, from Adam. The Adamic race. The transmission of both sinful nature and guilty standing spread to the entirety of humanity. That is what is meant by the term being in Adam. All humanity since Adam possesses both a sinful nature and a guilty standing. If we just think of it as original sin, which is how it's so commonly thought of, if we just think of this as an original sin, in that we just received the sinful nature, it does not go anywhere near far enough. The biblical way to view this, as revealed in the Scripture's revelation of it and explanation of it, is that, it is, is that Adam's guilt is our guilt. Adam's guilty standing is our guilty standing. Because Adam is the representative head of all humanity. If you're not in Christ, you are in Adam. And when you're in Adam which the entirety of humanity is outside of Christ, before they come to Christ by faith, if you are in Adam, then you are condemned. Condemned. Condemned under, under the law of God. Having broken the law of God by your own sinful acts and by Adam's transferred guilt. This is called federal headship. That's what it's called. Federal headship. When Adam sinned, he was representing all of humanity. And so all of humanity inherits that same sinful nature passed on from birth to birth to birth to birth. And because of the sinful nature and the sinful actions ourselves... There is a guilty standing. We inherit Adam's guilty standing. We sin by nature. Therefore, we commit acts that have us standing guilty as well. So all of humanity stands condemned. Having Adam as their representative. Having Adam as to whom they are united with. I'll flick ahead to Genesis chapter 6 now. And look at verses 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 6. Then Yahweh, the one true and living God, then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every, not some, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at verse 6. Yahweh, the one true and living God, was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. 
Verse 5 is God's audit of humanity's condition. Sin has spread to all. Sin corrupted and polluted all. Sin condemns all for all have sinned. But when it comes to sin, what exactly does that mean? Well, we could run a whole list of specific sins. That wouldn't really be helpful. That may educate those who don't know specific things may be sinful or not. But the chief expression of sin is unbelief. Unbelief. Willful rejection of divine truth revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. All other sin, if we listed them all, stems from that root of willful, hostile unbelief. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 5 as our little journey continues. And look at verse 12. Just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice there that it is not only sin that entered into the world, but that death entered in too. Death is the penalty of sin. Death spiritually, death physically, and death eternally in eternal judgment. Look down at verse 14 of Romans chapter 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Look at the end of verse 14. Who is a type of him who was to come. A type of him, capital H, Jesus, who was to come. So that's an interesting statement, isn't it? Adam is a type of him who was to come. Who was him to come? None other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A type is a representation by one thing of another. To say that Adam is a type is to say that Adam is serving as a representation, a symbol of sorts, Of Jesus Christ. Types and shadows. So to make that clearer in your mind. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look at verse 45. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45. So 
so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam becomes, or Adam became a living person created by God. So did we. Adam sinned. So did we. Because we were imputed, that word imputed, credited, clothed with, we can say here in this instance, transmitted with Adam's nature and guilt. We have a problem. If we are an Adam, we have a major, major problem. But look at the end of verse 45 again. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, who is referred to there as the last Adam, is a life-giving spirit. When we are in Adam, we need life. We've been... Swallowed up by death. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. Destined to die physically, awaiting eternal death in judgment. When we are in Adam, we need life. We possess none. All we have is death. This is why Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, the Apostle, this is why he can say in verses 21 and 22 of the chapter we're in right now, chapter 15, look there with me, look back, verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Turn back with me now to Romans chapter 5. You're thinking, man, he doesn't really get us to turn a lot of places on a normal Sunday, but trust this is good for you. Back to Romans 5 again, but this time look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of 
life to all men. Verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus, many will be made righteous. Here, right here, is where we begin to see the difference between the two Adams. Did you notice the words used to describe the first Adam? Transgressed. Disobeyed. Did you notice the words used to describe the last Adam, Jesus? As having obeyed. The first Adam, marked by sin and disobedience. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus, marked by obedience. Here is a very important contrast that God wants us to see this Christmas. That Adam's representation of all humanity is marked by disobedience. And Jesus' representation of all those that are in Him is marked by obedience. And so when we are in Adam, we are marked by transgression and disobedience and death. We need that dire predicament to be overcome by the one who is a life-giving spirit. The Lord Jesus, who by his works of obedience earning for all those in him, not the transgression of the law leading to death, but the fulfillment of all righteous requirements of the law on our behalf leading to life. We are saved by works. Jesus' works in His living and in His dying. The only way for the dire predicament of death, spiritually, physically, and in judgment, to be overcome is for there to be a change in the one who is acting as our representative. As I said, we are imputed with Adam's sin and guilt. We are credited with it. It is transmitted to us. What is true of Adam is true of us. And what Adam has, we have. Adam had sin, death, and no righteousness. But then Jesus comes into the world. Born into this world. And he lives a perfect life. Verse 19 of Romans 5 again. The end part. Even so through the obedience of the one. 
the many will be made righteous. You say, but he was God. Yeah, he was. But born into this world was the God man. Jesus was born under the law. And he kept the law perfectly. You and I never did and you and I never could. In fact, we were condemned under the law. Jesus, in his living as truly God and truly man, fulfilled all the righteous requirements and demands of the law. You and I could never do that. We never did that. We failed miserably. Adam, in the garden, when he was tempted, he failed. When Jesus Christ was in the wilderness and was tempted 40 days, he triumphed. He triumphed in his humanity for you, believer. And never think that some superhuman Jesus endured the 40 days of temptation simply solely as being God. No, no. He endured those temptations in His humanity. If He endured those temptations in His divinity, then He earns us nothing. But praise be to God. He did not use his divinity to overcome the temptation when Satan came to him and said, turn that stone into bread. He was hungry. And if he had have used his divinity to turn that stone into bread, we would not have us. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that you and I could never do. Adam in the garden was tempted and failed, and Christ in the wilderness was tempted and triumphed. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam had victory. And so we've seen so far, first, that Adam's sin is imputed to us. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. It's here in verses 10 to 14 of Galatians 3, we're now presented with the second imputation or transmission or crediting. The second one. The first one was Adam's sin is credited and transmitted to us. Here we're seeing the second imputation. 
Here we now begin to see our sin imputed or transmitted to Jesus. And the reason we need our sin to be laid on Christ, transmitted to Him, imputed to Him, is because the justice of God requires all sin to be punished. There is a satisfaction of justice that must occur. Look at verse 10 again. For as many uh, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That ruins everyone. Why does it ruin everyone? For there is no one alive who ever keeps the law perfectly. No one performs the works of the law in its fullness. And no one keeps on keeping the law perfectly. Notice how it speaks of abiding by all the things written in the law. You, just, you can't just think you're living perfectly just because you keep some part of the law. When you're driving, it's really annoying when this happens, right? You're on holidays, you're driving, and you drive by a truck, and a rock flicks up and cracks your windscreen. Because the windscreen is one piece of glass... It's not multiple pieces of glass. Because it's one piece of glass, when you crack the tiny little piece of it, you've cracked the whole thing. When we commit one sin against God, we stand guilty as having broken the entire law of God. Cursed is everyone who breaks the law. But look at verse 13 now. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having, get this, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That right there is the second imputation. The second transmission. The first, as I said, is Adam's sin nature and guilt to us. The second is our sin imputed to Christ. Christ redeems us from the curse of sin by taking in His body all our sin. And on the cross, He bears the penalty of guilt and the punishment for sin. And He does so in our place as our substitute. You see, if God did not punish sin, then God would not be holy and just and good. But because He is holy and just and good, He must punish sin. And so Jesus hangs upon that cross in our place. And He endures the full wrath of God that we deserve. He truly was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53. 
And as Jesus hung upon that cross and bore the penalty of sin for sinners, He satisfied the justice of God. There was a holy and righteous wrath that our sins stirred in God. And the wrath must be poured out. And instead of it being poured out upon those who most deserve it, you and I, our sin was credited to Jesus, imputed to Jesus, and in our place He went, and in our place He most certainly suffered. The eternally innocent one. Who did no wrong. Laid in a manger, born in Bethlehem, endured the wrath on our behalf so that our sin would be taken away. And what was left in its place? What was left in its place? A path. For unholy mankind to be reconciled to holy God. Which includes first, a declaration. A legal declaration. A legal declaration that by faith in the fact that Jesus bore your sins on the cross in your place, bearing your wrath, enduring your guilt... For you, you are then declared legally right before God. That is what is meant by justification. A legal declaration of righteousness. For the longest time, I used to just think justification meant declared legally right. As in not guilty before God. But justification is more than that. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. But here is an important thing for us to always keep in mind and to remember. We are not made righteous. We're not made righteous. As though righteousness is infused into us. We don't receive an IV hookup of righteousness that flows into our bloodstream like you do when you go to the hospital or you're dehydrated. We are declared righteous by God. And the grounds, meaning the basis for that justification, that declaration of righteousness... is because there is a third imputation now. We've seen Adam's imputation of his sin nature and guilt to us. We've seen now that that sin is then credited, transmitted, imputed to Jesus, who became a curse for us. And the very grounds and basis for 
the declaration of being declared righteous is because there is a third imputation now. A third imputation. And the third imputation is Jesus Christ's righteousness to us. You see, the righteousness that we are credited with, that is imputed to us, that we're clothed with, it doesn't come from out of nowhere. And it also doesn't come because it comes from divinity, deity, from God. The righteousness that we are clothed with does not come in a vacuum. It comes from somewhere else. And it must come from somewhere else. There must be an external, altogether foreign righteousness that we are credited with. Why? Because salvation is more than just sins forgiven. Or being declared not guilty. Or being viewed as though you have never sinned. Salvation is not only a matter of sins forgiven that is grand and praiseworthy. It is also a matter of exceeding righteousness. And what I mean by that is not the not that we need an exceeding righteousness of our own making. But the very essence of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 when He said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever thought about that statement before? In and of ourselves, that is unattainable. There is not some kind of level of righteousness that you need to outdo the scribes and the Pharisees who kept the law meticulously in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In and of ourselves, that is not attainable. Left to ourselves, we fail miserably. We are unable to fulfill the positive requirements of the law, like when we fail to love neighbor. And when we fail... To love God, for example. And because we fail at the requirements of the law, we are subject to what is known as the penal sanctions of the law. The law contains both positive requirements, love your neighbor, and the law also includes penal sanctions, meaning when you break the law, there are consequences. Meaning that we are required to be punished under the law. And so because we cannot keep the law, nor undergo the punishment of the law, that is where Jesus Christ, in His living and in His dying, becomes everything to us. Everything. Literally everything. In his living, he meets all the righteous requirements of the law. And in his dying, he meets all the penal sanctions of the law. 
And he undergoes for us what we never could. And what was that? The paying of the penalty for our sins and the purchasing for us a righteousness. Christ obeyed the Father's will. He said, I have come to do the will of Him who sent me. And so when you come on a mission, you have certain things you need to obey. And in obedience to the Father's will, Christ fulfills all for us. Paying the penalty for our sins and purchasing for us righteousness. Without that, there is no hope. Without that, there is no Christmas. Without that, there is no Christian life. Without that, there is only the consummation of death, both spiritually, physically, and as well as eternally. Listen to Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Salvation in Scripture is spoken of as both being forgiven of sin and clothed in righteousness. At Christmas, we think upon Christ coming into this world, born of a virgin. What's the significance of being born of a virgin? There's always levels to stuff. Things. What's the significance of being born of a virgin? It's miraculous. Is that the significance of it? That it was a miracle? The significance of Jesus being born of a virgin was that he comes into this world not inheriting Adam's sin nature or Adam's guilt. That's why. So that he can, as the God-man in his living and his dying, die as our substitute, sinless and perfect. Because what did God require? A spotless lamb, unblemished. We lay hold of all of this by faith. We lay hold of all these promises, not by the works of the law. We lay hold of all this promise, not by doing more better. We lay hold of all this incredible, remarkable gift by faith. And what is faith? Faith is belief. What is belief? Trust. What is trust? Trust is everything you need right now if you are in Adam. Offered before you. Is the God man. The one who in his living and in his dying becomes everything to you. When you trust in him. Believing that upon that cross he bore your sin. And you were guilty. But he stood in your place. 
and you go free. And then he rose again and he defeated death. That all those who trust in him are united to him. There's a lot of people in this room. And some of you have never truly trusted in Jesus. You have put confidence and hope in your faith. Is my faith strong enough? You have put confidence and hope in your belief. Have I believed enough? You've put confidence and hope in your turning away from sin. Have I turned enough? No, no, no. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. This Christmas. This moment. And this day. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. and Lord, we thank you for this little journey. We thank you for the way in which you plan salvation. No one could come up with that. No mind could think of that. No person could conjure up the dynamics of your redemption, your salvation, the clothing of righteousness, the earning of righteousness by your Son. Father, we stand in awe this Christmas. Every day is Christmas for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We greatly rejoice that you have clothed us with the garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. Father, help us now to enjoy fellowship in light of these truths. Help us now to lay aside the cares and worries in light of these truths. Help us to press on in light of these truths. Marching into another year, if you will, Lord. Father, we come before you and we say thank you. And all God's people said.